today on an all-new episode of the Enneagram Journey podcast. I am a movie critic by trade, and until recently, I got paid to tell you people which movies merely stink and which ones you shouldn't screen near an open flame. Well, I'm putting the burden of lousy movies back on you. It's very simple. If you stop going to bad movies, they'll stop making bad movies. Uh-oh, the jig is up. He's losing his mind. Hold on for a minute, cause I believe that we can fix this over time. Can anybody tell me what a boggart looks like? No one knows. When'd she get here? Boggarts are shapeshifters. They take the shape of whatever a particular person fears the most. That's what makes them so... So terrifying, yes, yes, yes. Luckily, a very simple charm exists to repel a boggart. Let's practice it now. After me. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Very good. A little louder. Very clear. Listen. Ridiculous. Ridiculous! This class is ridiculous. Very good. Well, so much for the easy part. You see, the incantation alone is not enough. What really finishes a boggart is laughter. You need to force it to assume a shape you find truly amusing. All of our Enneagram Journey Harry Potter fans are very happy right now, I'm sure. And a quick shout out to one such individual, our dear friend, KJ Ramsey. We love you so much. You're listening to the Anagram Journey podcast with the Anagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and I'll be along for the ride with today's guest, Anagram One, Brian Lee. Brian is going to share about his journey as a one. We're going to have a great discussion about that one seven line. And you get to listen for a friend of the podcast, Joey Shuey, when she weighs in today also. Suzanne participated in the Broken to Beloved online summit last year, and I know Brian is gearing up for the next one, and you can visit brokentobeloved.org for more information. Before we get into the podcast plug time, we delayed the release of today's show to the 4th for a very special reason. On this day, seven years ago, InterVarsity Press released The Road Back to You, An Anagram Journey to Self-Discovery. Odds are that you've read it, or maybe it was even your introduction to the Anagram and to Suzanne. I'm thrilled to let you know that the book has now sold over 1 million copies. LTM is celebrating this incredible achievement all month long. You can get a fresh signed copy of The Road Back to You on the LTM website for a lucky $13. Put it in your cart, let Suzanne know who she's going to sign it for, and we'll get it headed your way. Also, if you are in the Dallas area on Friday, October the 20th, we're going to be recording a live podcast at the Ivy Tavern on Lemon Avenue in Dallas, right near Love Field Airport for those of you that are like, man, I could, I could do a weekend getaway. Um, and we're going to be celebrating Suzanne, InterVarsity Press, and The Road Back to You. We're going to re- record the live podcast with a special guest. We're going to have some fun. We're going to celebrate. It's going to be a really, really great night. Um, we're going to have a few reserved tables with tickets for sale. But the night is free to attend, so come on. 
Thank you so much for your support of the podcast, Life in the Trinity Ministry, and Joe and Suzanne's work. I hope we get to see you sometime soon at the Micah Center or another event. But until then, enjoy today's episode with Suzanne and Brian. Okay, well, uh, I, how many months has it been since you and I had a good, long conversation? We, let's see, the summit was in April, and then you, the Reverend, and KJ, and I spoke in May. So it's been a while. That's when we met with the group, yep. Yep. Well, it's been a few months. What's happening in your world and in your work since we visited with one another? I am now planning the next summit, which will take place at the end of January, because I learned that January is Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either till this year. So I'm going to launch the next summit the last week of January. Um, so I'm starting to look for people now. So if you'd like to speak again, I'd love to have you. Thank you. Um, I am thinking repressed and therefore overthinking the process of creating a nonprofit with Broken to Beloved and what that looks like and following the steps for it. Um, I'm starting to shift towards the safeguarding and awareness space in addition to the recovery space mm -hmm. of afterwards with um, people who have been through and survived it and moving more towards getting into churches on the front end to say, hey, you should be aware that this happens. Here's how you avoid it. Here's how you become aware mm -hmm. of yourself and others, mostly using the Enneagram to say, okay, think different, feel different, or do different. Mm -hmm. um, so that's stuff that I'm working on now, um, kind of working those things. I'm getting ready to open up my next cohort in October. So I just started emailing people yesterday about it. Um, so that'll run for seven weeks through November. Mm -hmm. um, New baby, new yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned a minute ago that uh, you are thinking repressed. And yes. uh, listeners might not know, one, your Enneagram number, two, kind of your journey to this point. Can you shed some light on that, give us some background? Sure. I am a, a one through and through. Um, so I used to be offended hearing that I was thinking repress until I learned that it means I just don't think productively. <laughs> um, I learned about the Enneagram. Let's see. I don't know how many years ago, when it, whenever Sleeping at Last put out all their songs, because he started with one. And man, did it nail me to the floor. Um, and I think I just sat at my desk at church and cried for two hours and said, okay, I've always been taught that I need more grace in my life. All of my pastors and mentors and teachers and all have always just said, Brian, you need more grace. And I always remember just sitting there thinking, yeah, I know, but how? I just, I don't get it, right? And hearing that song and the lyric, grace requires nothing of me, finally liberated me of needing to try harder, right? right? Um, and to actually and finally be able to receive it for myself. And then therefore, as a really critical, judgmental one, be able to offer it to other people around me, right? And all of a sudden, the blinders come off of, I'm not just a victim to everyone else's criticism. I'm actually probably the worst perpetrator to myself and to others around me, because I just didn't realize I was doing it. It's, and uh, it changed everything for me. It's fascinating to realize that 
you have you have been seeing the world regardless of your age through the lens that so often is uh, negative about who you are as a human being. Mm-hmm. Lots of ones, lots of them have a tendency when they hear their number taught for the first time to just cry. Yeah. And I think part of it is because of unawareness that the inner critic other people have that too and the awareness that not everybody has it yeah and for me the big the big moment was that i just always grew up thinking and assuming that the inner critic was the voice of god or of the holy spirit and when i finally was able to disentangle that and detach that it's like oh that's just my inner critic boy did that change things for me i can't imagine living with an a voice that is 99% of the time critical that you think is the Holy Spirit. It it mm-hmm. just negates any self-appreciation or value. It negates it all because the critic talks about behavior. Yeah, constantly. Yeah. Do you have a way of, that you're working to manage that? Yeah, I've... Um... I've named him. Good for you. <laughs> Without a real name, because I actually don't. There was an old show in the probably 90s that John Lovitz did called The Critic. And oh. it's an old animated show. And I'd never really watched it. I just remembered seeing commercials for it. And it was like a, a spinoff of Siskel and Ebert. And he was just a movie critic. And his tagline was just, it stinks. <laughs> and... um I loved his character in A League of Their Own, which is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> so when I, I just kind of assumed that personality, character, and voice, um, and assumed that that's kind of how he acts in his show called The Critic. So whenever I hear my inner critic, I just give it the voice and face of John Lovitz and think, I can laugh at that. You can tell me it stinks, but I know it doesn't. If I remember correctly, that cartoon, the his cartoon character looked like him yes yeah okay i'm thinking of the same same show just want to make sure i was on the same page yep so i'm not thinking about that show at all yeah, if the I'd... two of you would like to continue <laughs> talking about it I, i'd happily listen and now in my head i i can see him in backstage on the wedding singer saying he's lost yes. his mind all right that's anyway, exactly sorry. it um i just i love his uh characters that he would play back then and just it just he makes me laugh so it instead of becoming a weaponized thing against me, it just turns into this thing I can just laugh at and be like, you know, I get it. You're going to talk to me all day long and you're just a critic. I don't have to listen to it. I don't want to go down a different rabbit hole of (laughs) pop culture and things that are, especially with the Enneagram. So for me personally, I don't love this. However, for people that do, people that do the whole Enneagram and Harry Potter stuff. So there's that. Mm -hmm. that. That's fine. That's fine. However, what you're saying, though, does remind me uh, there's this deal where they're trying to the things that are big and scary in their life, the spell or whatever that they cast is like something to make them silly. And that yes. that's what I'm that's just the correlation that I'm hearing you make where it's like it is this scary. Thing. Yeah, it's this yeah. scary, the, the real thing. Yeah. OK, you know what I'm talking about, that then you do this and it just it takes away the threat more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you. I I don't know about you, Brian, but you know I've uh, Joel's mind, so I know him from the beginning. 
And I wonder, Joel used to laugh sometimes when he was in trouble and he thought it was uh, unjust and unnecessary trouble. And I wonder if that's that same move. And I'd like to hear both of you, if you can, talk about whether you, you think your line to seven has something to do with your ability to do you with your line to seven. Do you think that has something to do hmm. with your ability to do that? I would say for my end, question. it is a good And I've never thought about that. And I think from both sides, it's the, you know, if the, if the anagram is all about balance right? from both sides, it's the balance for me to one, it's, you need to take this a little more seriously than you're taking this and you need to get out of your head and you need to do these things. Hmm. And I'm, and I can't speak for a one, but for, for the, for the other side, this isn't as serious as you're making it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what, to be clear, when I was in trouble as a child, I, I was in, I was in effing trouble. Like, and I was in trouble a lot. However, uh, the, when it was, and you say it sometimes in your teaching, you know, when you just all in the feelings and over the top with yeah. the feelings about something, when it just became bigger than the actual situation, that's when it became humorous to me. Right. And your humor was fairly dangerous. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's so much here for you two to unpack. And I might have a thing or two to say about where's the line that you cross between one and seven Mm -hmm. because it's there somewhere. So if you're talking about balance, you're talking about both numbers for you. And so for a one, we're talking about seven and four, which is very interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. I think that you two might have some wisdom to share in terms of how to best use the gifts of each other's number in your own. Hmm. I going back to the Harry Potter reference, cause I always appreciate a good Harry Potter reference. And we were talking about KJ earlier, which makes me think of her too. Um, you know, when they're dealing with those boggarts, which are these crazy things that just take on the form of whatever you fear the most, I just loved how she wrote that the spell to counteract them is just called ridiculous. And I think when you talk about the line that is appropriate to cross between one and seven, is Joel saying that there are times that he knows he needs to take things more seriously. And there are times for me as a one that I absolutely need to take things less seriously. (laughs) Because my default is that I'm always in trouble. And maybe I can just let go of some of that because it is ridiculous to think and feel and act that way all the time, which is just this crushing weight, right? So when I'm finally able to release that and recognize what a joke all this pressure is that nobody put on me except for myself, then I can turn it into something else, right? Um, And whether it's John Lovitz just pretending like everything stinks or whether it's turning into a whatever it is, there's that line that I absolutely need to, it's like a release valve, right? On a pressure cooker, because yes, yes. <laughs> you can only take so much before you blow. And so in the way that I think, Joel, that you learn when to kind of tamp things down and become more serious, I learn to let things go and become less serious about things. Um, and it's in those moves for me that I recognize 
the healthy moves towards sevens that that is not just an escape hatch to get out of the things that I know I'm responsible for or feel obligated to do, but it's a healthy move to either laugh at myself, laugh at the expectations, take the whatever it is less seriously and recognize that the only person who cares right now is me. Um, and just to take the pressure off. There's, I like that both ends of the spectrum are ridiculous. Yeah. Like it's not it's true. <laughs> yeah. That, that both, it's not a, Oh, you got, you know, this is ridiculous over here, but this isn't, it's like, they're both ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Whitney, uh, my wife is a one and she has, I don't know if this is from, uh, from stuff that we've done here at the Mike center or just on her own, or if it's just happening, we one we have to keep all the doors in our house closed because of the damn puppy who eats everything so <laughs> so there's that literally has one remote control one roku remote is gone and josie i, I blew it off at first josie was like maybe boulder like ate it ate it i was like no way he ate a remote but now it's like we've looked everywhere and it was here <laughs> last night so maybe he did eat the remote the other one was just absolutely destroyed so it probably did happen that way sidetracked so all the rooms to the house are closed. Three of the rooms are children's bedrooms, which are quite honestly a nightmare. And so finally, though, uh, little sweet Josephine, her room had gotten out of control. And I was like, I can't take any more. And I kind of waited. I made some references to, we got to work on this. We got to work on this. And then finally, I was like, you know what? I've got to work on this, I think, is what's going to happen here. So yesterday, literally yesterday, I go in there and... Send the kids to the pool. Josie was helping at first, and I realized that that was counterproductive. I was like, you need to go away. So I start working at it. Whitney's not home yet. No one's ever in Josie's room. There's a point to this story, by the way. I know it's taking oh, some I'm time. I'm all in. I'm on the edge <laughs> of my seat. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, me too. No one is ever in Josie's room, except for Josie, and only a little bit. Like, she's not there very often. We've got a child's room. We've got the kids' playroom that they all do most of their stuff in there. And... uh and the more her room becomes a mess, the less time she spends in there. So she's not been in there. And so I'm in there, and I'm like, you know what? Uh, the doors to her closet, one kind of sticks and doesn't open all the way. The space is very much needed in the closet for her to utilize it and be able to see it very well. And so I was like, you know what? I'm taking these doors off. Yep. They're not, mm-hmm. they're facing, if you're walking in the hallway, you can't see them. Mm-hmm. So they're not an eyesore to see in her closet. She's the only one in there. Why not? So I take them off there in the hallway. I go back to work when he gets home and I meet, she's like, uh, what, what we got happening here? <laughs> and I said, all of the things I said, no one, I was like, I know, I know you don't love this, but guess what? You're never in there. You'll never see it. It's not, this will make it much more easy for her to function and use the room and so on. It, it'll be okay. And so she's like, okay, that's fine. I'm, uh, she already had a plan. So this wasn't like, I've got a de-stress. She's like, all right, I'm headed outside to work out. I was like, that's good. I don't think three minutes went by. She's back in the hallway uh-huh. and she's like, I, I, <laughs> we can't do it. I changed my mind. can't do it. And, uh, they got to go back on. And I said, that's fine. But if I'm not going to take criticism, <laughs> then you're going to do this job. She said, fine, I will do it and put the doors back on. And so that's, that is such a good one story. Brian, you respond first, and then I, I want to. 
I, I'm not sure where to go with that one. I think <laughs> I, my first instinct to respond is just like, what a miracle it is when we learn to see things from each other's point of view yeah. and to not take it personally and react. Because I feel like that story could have gone 20 other ways. And the fact that it ended peacefully <laughs> between the two of you um, is nothing short of a miracle in a marriage, right? Or in any relationship. And for me, so my wife is a self-preservation three. Um, so she can act very one-ish at times. Mm -hmm. um, and I, when it comes to things like that, where it's making a decision about the house or being clean or doing these things, um, there have been a few times where we've ended things peacefully and many times where it's just, it's got to be one of our ways or the other. Yeah. And someone's going to lose at the end. And so I appreciate the ability of you and Whitney <laughs> to talk it out that way. And I think, Joel, even for you to say, okay, well, if I'm not going to take criticism, you're going to do the job. I don't know that I would ever get away with that. Um, and probably because I've just never tried, but it's, it's, learning how to communicate in that kind of a way and present things that don't come across as judgmental. It's just, Hey, here are the facts. This is the way you see it. This is the way I see it. It doesn't have to be that one of us is right, wrong, bad, or bad or good. It's just, we're going to see it differently. So which way do we want to choose? Um, and I love that the Enneagram helps us to learn that we can be okay with that. And I, I want to back up real fast and say, I, I misspoke with how I said that it was, no. <laughs> it was, I take criticism all the time from everyone and, and, mm -hmm. and there's no one in the world I trust more than Whitney to give me criticism. But I was like, if you don't like the way I'm doing it, I'm mm -hmm. okay. Like this is, you want to talk about a hill I'm not about to die on. It's, right. it's whether these doors are going to be on there, but if you don't like the way I'm doing it and <clears> you're <throat> going to do it, then I'm good with that. And you're a hundred percent right. Sure. I can definitely times that we weren't, um, in as healthy a spot, maybe is the way to say it, where she said something and I took it personally and and it was about me instead of about her and the doors. Yeah. It's, like I, it's got nothing to do with me. It's mm -hmm. got everything to do with her stuff uh, with how th she thinks things need to be. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, I love that you just use that phrase because my wife uses it with me regularly uh, when she notices I'm getting all up in my oneness is, is this really the hill you want to die on right now? Mm -hmm. And it's a nice, gentle reminder. It's like, Hey, you're doing that thing for me to kind of catch my breath and rethink things a little bit. <laughs> and once in a while it is the hill I want to die on, but yeah. most of the time it's absolutely not. Well, that's what I love that Whitney left. Okay. I can deal with this. And then came back and yeah. was like, Nope, it is. This is a hill for me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yep. I, had a list of things to do this morning before I came here and Joe and I are leaving town very early tomorrow. And I was so proud of myself because I got it all done. And then I got here about halfway here and there's one thing that I didn't do. And I'm not a one, but I have a strong one wing. And I, it's astonishing to me how many times I've thought about that one thing. And it doesn't matter. It's not a big thing. It doesn't matter that I didn't get it done, but I can't, I can't leave it alone. And Brian, that's one of the things that I hope all ones can recognize is that perfection in the present moment, past moment, uh, something you forgot to do, something you don't think you did well, all of that is unproductive thinking. And mm. all of it 
keeps you tethered to the present moment with no free space to move on. Mm -hmm. It would be a good spiritual practice for ones if they're doing uh, maybe examine for, I don't know, a month or something at noon and bedtime to what, to observe how much they think about what they didn't finish, didn't do, or what they've agreed to that they don't think they can live with. It's a, it's a hard comeback to say from a place that seems so mature and family oriented and all that. I can do this. This is, if it's best for Josie and, and you think it's a good idea, I can do this to going outside and thinking, I, I just can't, it'll make me crazy. I want to do it. I can't do it. And it seems to other numbers to be kind of an over the top thing. Hmm. All right. This semi leads to a question that I just popped in my head uh, for people that listen to the show, you know, that we don't have a script or, you know, whatever. There are so many ones out there that push back. Every number pushes back against things. Ones that push back against the, the word perfectionist. And my question for you as a one, Ryan, and you, Suzanne, the Anagram Godmother, is it more is it more correct that it's the maybe the word right, like there is a right way to do things that must be done that is bigger than the idea of perf- being a perfectionist? So like Whitney, for instance, her car is a, is a total dumpster. Drives me insane. Mine's not perfect, but I'm like, I don't know how you do this. And she's got areas of her life. Her clo- her um, office is pristine and perfect and in place. Like there's just, I think, so in my mind, she's like, These, there are things that don't matter and there are things that matter and those, and I am right about this. And then those, and these things that I do, and I'm right about the things that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Do you all hear the question that I'm asking that, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brian, you go first. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the answer to this, but I think it's important for ones and people who want to understand and love ones how to define perfectionist. Because I'm fine with that term and label for myself, knowing that I don't try to get everything perfect. And it's like you're saying with Whitney, it's like there are, there are certain areas of life or certain things that just don't matter or I don't care about. And then there are other areas that I'm just really stupid about that have to be this way that really don't matter at all. So it makes no sense. And I wonder from you, Suzanne, if it has to do with instincts or if it has to do with something else, where our area or focus of attention is, whether it's on perfecting ourself or others or a relationship or whatever it is. Um, I think when it comes to perfectionism, part of what turn me off to that for myself because there was a short period of time where I thought I was surely a nine (laughs) instead of a one because I can just get so lazy and slothful about things um, and not be perfectionistic and never start the thing that I know I need to get done. And then I realized that that is perfectionism because out of fear of not doing it the right way, or of not completing it or not doing it correctly the first time, I would rather just not start. Mm -hmm. So there's a strong element of procrastination that comes with perfectionism because I'd rather just not start if I'm not going to finish it the right way. Right. 
Um, so that's, that's what I've got. Yeah. Well, before I talk about perfectionism and why I think that is the right term, um, I want to say that there, it is astonishing to me that people who are trying to really work to figure out their number, how many of them are trying to figure out between nine and one? If, mm. if you had asked me where, what two numbers side by side are going to have the most difficulty knowing whether they're one or the other, uh, nine, one wouldn't have been one of the things I would have suggested. So that's just an interesting Enneagram piece to me. I think perfectionism has everything to do with not perfecting everything, but perfecting the thing that you are doing. The things that matter have to be done perfectly. And these uh, extra things out here don't have to be. And I think, mm -hmm. I think right and correct are words that don't get us where we want to go. It is true that if a one takes a stand, it's because they believe they're right. It doesn't always end up that they're correct. <laughs> That's a very odd space there that you have to work with because I'm right to do this and I'm right to do it the way I did it and I have done it perfectly, but it may not be correct. Yeah. And I, I can share a really good example of good, that. Good, please do. <laughs> so way back when I used to be a graphic designer, um, and I remember, and this was before I knew the Enneagram, and I was deep in my critical oneness. Um, and there's so much of that should and ought, right? Of let me just fulfill someone else's expectations and do the job that's expected and required of me. And I remember completing a brochure for some department and copying and pasting all of the the copy and the words and whatever was needed for it. I don't know if it was a scholarship form or something else. It doesn't really matter. And then we get a phone call a week later saying that something was wrong and I need to fix it. And can I please fix it? And I remember that it was a particularly stressful time of my life. And I remember responding not well. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of blew up on the phone at this person and said, well, you proofread it. You told me it was exactly the way you needed it to be. And this was already done. So you can't expect me and I don't have time and all these things. And I stood my ground because I thought I did the right thing, even though it absolutely was not correct. And the mistakes were absolutely there. And I could have or should have caught it and didn't and didn't care to because, again, this was one of those products I didn't care about. Right. So it was just let me get it done and off my plate. And man, did that one come back to bite me, right? Because then my superior hears me in the other office and says, I can't believe you just talked to someone like that on the phone and we need to fix it and all these things. I said, well, what are you talking about? She's the one who's wrong because she said that it was okay. And I was like, <laughs> it did not go well for me. Um, but that story just pops in my head immediately when you made the distinction between being right and yes. being correct. Yeah. And I think it all are uh, defined by whoever's looking at them. You know, it's all about the eye of the beholder, whether or not some mm -hmm. things are right or not. I believe that in terms of oneness, perfection has to do with what you're doing, what you've given yourself to, to do it the best that you can. And being right, I think, is a one's justice stance. 
And I think right is applied accurately and appropriately when ones are fighting for something that is a justice issue where things are just not right. And correct is its own special reality that's agreed upon by other people. Mm. You know, a justice issue about what's right isn't necessarily agreed upon by other people. But correct has a, a wider group of people who are saying this is correct and this is incorrect. In terms of sticking with perfectionism, I've had to defend this a lot, so <laughs> that's what I was trying to put you on. You know, on the defense today. Yeah, just... I know, I know you're not. It's a good thing for us to talk about, but in terms of perfectionism, the path to some healing is recognizing that you can live, and you're doing it, Brian, into a place where things are good enough, mm-hmm. even when they're not perfect in your eyes. Yeah, and that's a one's journey. Yeah. And I, I don't want to take the journey away by taking away perfectionism because whatever it is you decide to do, it is your desire to do it perfectly. Yeah, that's good. The story that you told a second ago, Brian, also reminded me of uh, potentially uh, another Enneagram One teaching. And someone, it's because someone, I think, either reposted something that you posted a long time ago, Suzanne on social media or pulled a quote from your teaching and put it up themselves. But it was about ones looking for judgment on others mm-hmm. to avoid their self judgment. Right. That leading into kind of a two part question for you, Brian of, is that what you just described? Is that potentially an example of that? Uh, where it's like, no, you missed the proofreading and to avoid the, you know, the fingers pointing back at yourself. And then the follow-up question being like, what does that look like in a healthier space for you? Yeah, that's great. Um, the answer is absolutely. That's what was happening. Um, I can't, I won't speak for all ones, but I'll speak for myself that the inability to accept my errors or to admit fault somehow always came coupled with this expectation that it means my job and life are now over. Mm. If I have to admit that I did something wrong Mm -hmm. or that I didn't complete something the way it was supposed to be done, I should just assume that I'm going to be let go. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I can never admit that I'm wrong (laughs) or didn't do it the right way. And so, you know, we talked earlier about those release valves these are these really unhealthy release valves that the pressure is too strong on myself. So I've got to vent it on someone else. And so let's displace it on this other person who surely also did something wrong here. Right. Um, And the healthy version of that, I learned from another coworker years later at a church that I was working at. Um, I was part of a creative arts team as the worship pastor and doing all these other things. And um, there was a big service and one of my coworkers and friends absolutely dropped the ball on something important that was supposed to be done for that weekend. And so we just didn't have it for Sunday and it kind of made a mess of things. Mm-hmm. And so in our team meeting the following week, it was just, Hey, what happened? Right? Like this was important. We've talked about it. We planned for it and you just didn't get it done. Mm-hmm. And I'm fairly certain he was a seven 
and just kind of laughed and said, yeah, I'm really sorry. I really messed that up. I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. And I remember staring at him and looking at our boss thinking, surely he's about to get fired. This is the end. And I'm so sad because I really like this guy. And our boss just said, great, no problem. Let's just make sure it doesn't happen again. And my jaw hit the floor. Like genuinely, I did not realize that you are allowed to just apologize and own something and that everything would be fine. And so that taught me a huge lesson. (laughs) I was like, it's okay to just own your mistakes and admit that you were wrong and hopefully expect grace or forgiveness from someone when you ask for it. Yeah. And um, it taught me to let go of so much of that pressure and to release it in a healthy way to say, yep, I did. I messed that one up. I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? Yeah. And the repairing work that that has done in my relationship since <laughs> has been huge. And I don't get it right all the time for sure. Sure. Um, but it's it sure has released that whole perfectionistic and right thing for me. Yeah, I think that's another great example of ridiculous on both ends. That's, I think that's why <laughs> one and seven is just such a beautiful line. It is with you know when you're saying uh, you know if I make one mistake, you know I'm fired. It's all over. All that. that that's ridiculous. And then you're teaching about sevens that sometimes sevens need to be made aware that there is a problem. Yep that they don't even know that there's a problem. It's like, hey, you realize that you messed up here, right? Yeah. And you got to bring that to light. And just that kind of combining of the two, of meeting in the middle, like, oh, there is a problem, and, and my bad. And there is a problem, and it's not the end of the world. Right. It, and is that um, is that for ones, is that a, an example of chaining? I was just fixing to talk about chaining. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> got it written right here. Okay. I have it written, though, after I have written... You are very good for one another, very helpful in your Enneagram number for one another. And I'm seeing it in a new way today. I don't I don't know if we've just never had this discussion with a seven and you and me, but it is a one. I mean a one and you and me. But it is the point that you're both making, which is the extreme and either one of our numbers is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I'm not sure how to define extreme in my number yet based on the things y'all are talking about. Well, I think if we were to, it doesn't work. It does. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it does. Oh, okay. Well, tell me how. (laughs) Well, if I were, I don't know, we're talking about seven, one right here. And if we're going to go with, uh, two and eight, Mm -hmm. the extreme of eight and the extreme of two, Mm -hmm. if, are ridiculous and the balance is there in the middle of uh in my opinion for you to things are on boundaries and your own needs Mm -hmm. and uh i don't know i'll i'll I'll, I'll let you make the list instead of me yeah and then eight on the other side of coming more towards two sorry Mm -hmm. i'm not speaking about this eloquently like you could you did a fine job you spoke eloquently enough that I agree with you that both are ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) What if I said to you specifically name three things, Brian, that are gifts for you from seven consistently. Mm. And Joel, you name three things specifics that are gifts from one for you specifically. Joy is the first word that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Just unbridled joy. 
um, in the face of any circumstance, there's that beautiful ability to reframe things in a healthy, positive way, not as an escape, but as a necessary thing, because I don't have much easy access to that. So that is an absolute gift to me. Spontaneity is a huge gift from seven to me because I can be so overly structured or so weighed down by the expectations of nobody <laughs> um, and all the shoulds and oughts of, oh, well, I should do this. I could do that. I ought to do that. But it's it doesn't matter. And so, you know, you often hear jokes about ones going in vacation mode and suddenly becoming those sevens, right? And that's that gift of spontaneity that comes with it. It's like, oh, let's just go do this. Right. This doesn't matter. Let's just throw this out there and just see what happens. Um, I see when that kicks in for me. And that is a gift, not just to me, but all the people around me. It's like, oh, this is a much better version. Where did this come from? Yes, for more, sure. please. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, the unbridled joy, the spontaneity. And just the the lightness that comes with being around a seven. Sevens are so easy and fun to be around, not because of the fun piece or not the, the make me laugh piece. There's, there's just a, a, a lightness mm. to being around a seven that feels like there is no expectation. Yeah. There is no weight that comes with that. It's just a, hey, let's just hang out and be together and see what happens. It is interesting, isn't it? that sevens don't have a lot of expectation in, in that whole spontaneity thing. And it's part of the adventure. It's, I don't, it, I don't want to have an expectation. I want to have an adventure and then be surprised mm -hmm. by what happens. What about you, Joel? What are your three? When you ask a question, I'm glad to start with Brian. Uh, put like a two word combo of like doing and completion. Mm -hmm. mm. I, like not just to doing, cause I do, but to completion, uh, that's a big one. Uh, responsibility is a, another like key term. I think that I, without oneness, uh, a super lack. And then with that, I put, I had a word and I changed it to structure. However, I want to, I want to use the other word and it sounds awful, but I put safety like I mm. think, and then, and then what made me kind of want to talk about that a little bit was when you said unbridled joy for sevens and I'm like, sevens need bridled joy. <laughs> that's right. And that's what, that's, that's what I mean about safety. It's like, man, just literally anything can happen. And when you're a parent and you have a job and things, it can't be unbridled. You, you have to be bridled. Right. Like I'm not mm. 16 anymore, Joel. Mm -hmm. So can't join the young adults at church. I mean, I, I can. I will. Damn it, I will. Yo, you keep bringing it up. I'm going to join the young adults class with That's or right. without my Well, so I wonder, I wonder this for you, Joel, then, because I, I feel like I'm hearing it as you share your words, and I they land on me. They don't feel like great words to me as a one. Interesting. Right? Um, and I wonder if, as I was sharing, that you were kind of having the same thoughts or feelings or reactions of, those don't sound like my best qualities that I would pick for someone. But it's interesting to me that as we share them with each other, that it it lands differently than the way I express it to you, um, because those three words that I share are absolutely gifts that I appreciate so much about being around a seven or being able to move toward that space. Um, so I wonder how that landed on you when I share my three words. I've got a long answer for this. So Suzanne, talk, when she does her know your number, 
you know, she starts with she starts with eight, and she starts in her intro saying, "There's one number that likes their number, and the rest, I don't know." And I've always been like, "Man, I, and I know what you're I know what you're saying there." I'm like, "I like being a seven. I don't want to be a different number. Being a different mm-hmm. number just sounds really hard. First of all, mm-hmm. and being a seven sounds easy. Like it it is easy to me to be a seven. Uh, and so in that kind of in that light." That, yeah, it's like, oh, then when people, you know, any sort of uh, throw pillow or seven, Enneagram 7 meme is always a slap in the face, I feel like, to me. Mm-hmm. And that it's like, oh, it's, I wish I had some examples off the top of my head, but I skipped right past and went, it's like, sevens, I don't, I don't know, I can't think of an example right now, but I, I never like them. Right. And then when I come into contact with, other sevens who are like me when they're in there, when I'm not like in the essence or not in the essence in the excess of my number, but another seven is, Oh my gosh, it's horrifying. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And I can see it because I know that I'm there. So let me be really, really clear. I know it, you know, it's a whole, well, or what's that, uh, Taylor Swift song? Like it's me. Like I, or or (laughs) the problem. Yeah, on the problem, and then the other one is the meme of uh, or the GIF from Star Wars, where they're looking for Obi Wan Kenobi. Of course, I know him. He he's me. Yeah, it's like that's how I know it. it's me, and I and I don't like it. So I think that's my way of answering that. Of like I, I've got, you know, I can be a I could be a thirteen year old, just plain and simple. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, in my opinion ones need to act a little bit more like a 13 year old at times and, and have, have all the things. And I, I didn't mean any of the things that I said as negatives. I, I have to have those things. I want them. Sure. I wish I had them. I wish I had it more on board. I wish it wasn't, it didn't have to be so uh, conscious Mm -hmm. to be like that. Do you hear how sad that is? I have to be conscious to be a response for responsibility for safety. Yeah, but just take, yes, you do, but just take in that Brian has to be aware and conscious for spontaneity. So he, he has to plan to have spontaneity, yeah. right? Yeah, I just want to make sure oh, that. And that's sad too, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think there are moments, if you think about it, Joel, and I could be wrong, uh, I'm making space for that. And I know that you overall would rather be your number than any other number, but I think there are moments in your life when you have not wanted to be a seven. Well, I think it's the same for every number. The moments when I don't want to be a seven is when being a seven has gotten me in trouble. Yeah. Mm. I'm just not sure there are moments when eights don't want to be eights. Maybe. Maybe. I think I think if Joey were here, I don't want to speak for eights, and I'm not speaking for Joey. But I think if she were here, she'd be like, there, being an eight has gotten me in trouble, and if I hadn't been an eight in this instance. Yeah, something different would Something different would have happened. Yeah. Okay, well, I may have to change that teaching. And let me be clear. I think anyone who's like, this might get cut out, so we'll see. Because <laughs> I, I don't know how offensive this is. But if you love your number, you're unhealthy. Like, if you're like, I, if you are just, mm-hmm. man, yep. the thing, the gifts that I have, and I don't need yep. the other stuff, yeah. and I don't want, yep. then that's just an unhealthy stance to be in. Great. And I yep. don't think eights feel that way. Mm-hmm. 
So right there I said, I don't speak for eights, and I don't speak for Joey. And then I said it, and we've talked. And I was like, you know what? I I know Joey. And uh, how about I just give her a quick call and while I'm editing here, and we'll get her two cents. I'll play the clip for her, and she can speak for herself um, as an anagram mate and for Joey. So, Joey, you heard what the listeners just heard. Now you talk instead of me, Joel, seven, talking. While I am a huge fan of debunking general myth and theory about Enneagram that exists, man, I love being my number. And there is not one moment in my life when I have not wanted to be an eight and liked being an eight. So I will say that I'm grateful, obviously, for Enneagram because after 26 years of applying this lens to my life, what I know is my shortcoming as an eight. Meaning, until you know the Enneagram, you don't realize as an eight that you can't disregard someone else's, the impact you have on someone else. And I think that's where I fell short, was disregarding the impact I had on others. But man, now that I work with it every day, know it, I wouldn't choose any other number to be. And I know y'all are talking about lines. I think I share the best lines to the heart <laughs> and head triad. I mean, like, I think I'm hitting it on all cylinders. If I've got a draw from feeling, there's no better number than a draw from an empathic too. If I've got a draw from thinking, no better number in my book than to draw from an objective and neutral thought. Okay. I mean, that, that talks to it. I, and to be clear, I don't want to be another number like that. I don't want to be another number either. The point that the point that I'm trying to make, if you will, is that my number gets me in trouble. And at the, and then at those moments I do have some, uh, long-term again, you and I, okay, we're both, and we don't need to record a podcast inside of a podcast. Uh, but <laughs> right. we're both future oriented and seven, eight aggressive stance. If I say I have regret, it's not, oh, I'm still living back there when this thing happened and, right. you know, struggling with it. It's, I wish I hadn't done that. And I wish, I wish I had done that differently for a moment. And then I move about my life. And that's all I was saying was that I think if you are Enneagram one through nine and you're not saying, eh, you know, that, that's what part of being an eight is. That's what part of being a seven is. That's not, that's no good. I agree that the lack of self-reflection is unhealthy to compare myself as an eight to you as a seven. If I look back in my life, I have never said, I wish I hadn't done that. I have said to myself, man, I wish it hadn't been taken like that. Ooh, that's interesting. Cause it's still not, I wish I hadn't done anything ever. Mm. Okay. Which I think might speak I, to the the theory, right, of how much of you've taught me that seventh behavior is not impulsive. Anything looking back, even the most painful times in my life, uh, I'm I wouldn't have if I had it to do over. I I wouldn't have done anything different. To do over, I wish you would receive it differently. <laughs> kind of. And my work, thanks, thankfully, to take that a step further 
if I had the ability to go back and redo anything I would change is my approach and my awareness of how I'm taken and not what I've actually done. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for your feedback. Everyone loves you. And especially, oh, well, all the we eight. know that's not true. That's a good set. That's there's a lesson I've learned as an eight. I, I tell you what, all the eights love you. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with everything y'all have said. And when I'm teaching the basic first time people hear it, know your number. Eights do not feel anything negative about their number. That's what, yeah, I love uh, for anyone listening, go back. And find the podcast with Alex Joy. Yep. Because he, mm-hmm. the story of him and his wife going home from the Know Your Number, where he's like, that was awesome. She's like, you didn't yeah. hear anything bad about what was like that. That's a great story that describes this to in the best ways. Yeah. Wow, y'all. We're having a really good time and we're up against another podcast. But uh, for the, for what we have left, Brian. Mm hmm. Talk a little bit, if if you will, and if you don't want to, you can say, yeah, no, uh, about Broken to Beloved, and my question in that is, what is your relationship to church now? Well, that's not a big question at all. <laughs> <laughs> I just... um, yeah. So Broken to Beloved was born out of my 20 plus years in ministry as a pastor, as a worship leader, um, as part of an executive team, as all sorts of things. Um, and out of three pretty traumatic experiences of spiritual abuse at the hands of toxic leaders. Um, and so having over identified myself as broken for years to the point that I would walk into interviews with elders and pastors and say, actually, you don't want to hire me because I'm damaged goods. Oh, wow. To learn to recognize that that is not my identity because I, I wore it like it was. Um, and, you know, learning the Enneagram and learning to have grace for myself was a big part of untangling that. Um, you know, and we referenced KJ before, like reading her book, The Lord is My Courage, started me on the path to embracing my identity as beloved instead. That broken is something that happened to me, but it's not where I have to stay. And so when we talk about recognizing ourselves in excess in our number or being pathological in our number or any of those things, learning to find that joy, bridled or unbridled, learning to move forward and release the pressure from myself and learning to release the pressure of off of all those people who did those things to me because they've got their own story. Sure. Um, is this move toward finding this path toward healing and wholeness? Because unless I can address that with myself until I can name what happened to me, mm-hmm. I can't hope to heal it right. or address it. Right. Until I do the work to be aware of what has happened in me and how I play that role in my story, I can't hope to move forward, right? So Broken to Beloved started as a six-week cohort to lead other people who have had experiences of spiritual abuse and religious trauma and church hurt or church harm and to lead them through that 
kind of a pathway. Um, and then it became the summit that we did last April that you were so gracious to speak at. Um, and it's, it's something that's growing because more and more and more, we're hearing these stories from other people who have experienced it and for them to recognize that, Hey, more often than not, all they want to hear is I'm so sorry that happened. Yeah. And more no often than not it. what they get. Yeah. There is no fixing it. No. There's addressing it, but there's yes, not a fix. No it. fix. And I think more often than not, what people receive when they share a story like that is some form of spiritual bypassing mm-hmm. of, oh, well, surely there must be a reason or God works out all good, you know, things for good. All or have you prayed about it? Or, oh, aren't you over that yet? You're still talking about that thing. Yeah. When really the most helpful and healing thing would be, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I believe you. And that's the work is to address those people and to help them recover from those experiences that they carry. I carried that story for 12 years, Suzanne. It's like, I'm broken. I'm damaged goods. I must not be right or okay if these things keep happening to me. So, and and here, the thing with abuse and trauma is it strips you of your own agency. Right. You don't feel capable of making your own decisions because you think they're being made for you. So until I was able to recover that for myself and to own my role, right? Like we talked about earlier, admit fault, own my mistakes and my part that I played in all of those things, I wasn't able to move forward in a whole and a real and an integrity-filled way. And, you know, just so people have a a way in to look at that from a different number. So your, your language is I'm damaged goods. My language is because I'm a two- uh, and I didn't experience religious or church abuse, but I did experience trauma, big T trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, my thing is everybody leaves me. Mm. I mean, that's my way of, of walking through the world when I'm not healthy is everybody leaves me. So you're going to leave and you're going to leave and you're going to leave while mm. you're walking around saying I'm damaged goods and nobody's going to want me because of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's essential, and I didn't hear you use this word, and you may have. I've not heard it much in conversations like this one. I think it's essential that people understand that when you are on a significant spiritual journey in a church community, believing in God as much bigger than you are, mm-hmm. much bigger than all of us, that is inherently a place of vulnerability. And I think people are missing the, the depth of understanding that they're capable of when people talk about spiritual and religious abuse because they're not tipping their hat to the vulnerability. Yeah, and it all, you know, in the work that I've been doing, the two words that I keep coming back to are power and control. It all comes down to power and control Um, for the perpetrators of abuse and trauma and for the receiving end, for the victims of it. And it's like you're saying, for all of our types and all of our numbers, we're all looking for something to be fulfilled. And when we feel the need to fulfill it, we want that power and control versus being able to surrender that, to have it fulfilled by God who already loves me and meets my needs and does the things and is perfect. So I don't have to be, um, all of that work happens. Right. And, you know, in terms of my relationship with the church, it's, I'm 
I'm, we're attending one. We think we've landed at one. We're not going to become members or get involved right away. Sure. For so many people who have experiences like this, it's very triggering or activating just to pull into a parking lot. Right. And it can be a year after the thing happened. Yeah. Um, and it's just still too, too strong. Um, so it's okay to not go. <laughs> it's okay to not read your Bible if scripture has been weaponized against you. Absolutely. It's okay to not pray for a little while if that's been used against you. Right. Um, and I think so many people carry that burden of, oh, well, I'm not a good Christian if, or God doesn't love me if mm. I'm not doing one of these things. And it we have to be reminded that if God is real and his love is true, and if nothing really can separate us from that love, right. then it doesn't matter what I do or don't do or have power and control of or surrender. He's going to love me no matter what. Absolutely. And that's the beloved piece of Broken to Beloved. Yeah. So beautifully said. I'm so thankful that you're doing the work you're doing. I We need more of it. And I hope everybody who hears this who needs healing from church or religious abuse um, or know someone who does will share about Broken to Beloved. You're doing good, good, good work in the world. And it's hard to take a stand over a period of time on behalf of other people that also involves yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not an outsider listening to people who have experienced abuse trying to be helpful. You're an insider mm -hmm. trying to meet people where you know they are. And I'm grateful. Thank you. I'm grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sorry, we got to kind of uh, dismount quickly. Uh, sure. The, the next one. <laughs> uh, but man, what a great conversation. And Yeah, thank you both. And I'll uh, look at Suzanne's schedule and reply for the next time. Is there a different... Is there a different topic? I don't remember what she spoke about last time. We did Enneagram and trauma last time, but okay. we can just talk and it would be fine. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then, Clearly yeah. we're good at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're both gifted there. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Here's a clip from the next episode of the Enneagram Journey. There's a tension with church planters where you don't want your church to be about you, but it can't help but be a little bit autobiographical. And I think I was somebody who was longing for a place to practice my faith that was simultaneously like more historically grounded and more open and interested in what's happening in the world right now. And so we try to do that. Uh, we call ourselves liturgically promiscuous. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. We want to, I don't There's just so many beautiful, rich things in um, what John Philip Newell calls the Christian household. And it's a big house, you know, and we don't want to live in one room of it. And so we're trying to do that together here. <laughs>